0: Beauty of the World is our new mini-series that focuses on world and regional beauty concepts. In each episode, we'll be joined by a key opinion leader to discuss local attitudes to beauty, cultural tastes, and explore how the
1: key aesthetic markets around the world differ. We'll also learn how to approach, respect, and treat different skin tones and racial features, celebrating the amazing diversity of our faces and skin. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Good morning, Pega.
2: How are you, Jake? We're
0: very well. You're looking glam. You've got the the uh, the glamorous earrings on for us today.
2: Yes, exactly. I think exactly. You're probably
1: the, the most stylish uh, yeah. podcast guest we've had on yet. So well done.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So you're originally from Germany, but Persian background, living in Dubai. Have I got that right? Almost all yeah. right.
2: Yeah, my my parents are Iranian. Yes. So my- Blood is purely Iranian, but I never lived in Iran. So I'm grown up in Germany, went there to school, university, worked there, um, and 13 years ago I decided to uh, go a little bit southwards, and uh, so that's here where I am now in Dubai for the last 13 years, living happily and uh, working.
0: You got bored of the sausages. You wanted more shawarmas and hummus. Uh,
2: Absolutely correct. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, Peggy, why don't you tell us about your, your own background? I don't think I've ever asked you this. I've met you once in person, but why did you get into dermatology originally and then tell us about how you got into aesthetics?
2: Yeah, it was very interesting. Actually, I never liked dermatology, and I remember exactly during medical school, one of my very good friends, I hope she doesn't listen to that, she was telling me, I want to do dermatology, that's why I'm studying um Uh, medicine. I said, Oh, that's so disgusting. Yeah. All this (laughs) input on the skin and how could you, I really convinced her to not do that. So she is now an anesthesiologist. And I started, I wanted always to do something where I'm not only focused on one specific organ. So I didn't want to be limited on a specific part of the body. So I was thinking about internal medicine and then I found it so interesting to go into cardiology, interventional, so that I have, because I love also surgery, working with my hands. So I wanted something where I have a little bit of surgical, interventional uh, procedures, but also something holistic. So I started then with internal medicine went then into cardiology (laughs) and then then my friend was an anesthesiologist and then i found out no that's not really what what makes me very happy because i also found out that dermatology is not only limited to skin pimples and eczema and um, yeah i i really realized it very late that dermatology is one of the fields especially in germany where you can have so many different subspecialities that you can again cover the whole body. And it's not only the pure clinical medical, you can also then go into the aesthetic, which is as you know very well, a complete different world. So that's why um, I went then into dermatology. And then when I finished with dermatology, so in Germany, it's always associated with venerology. You're at the same time a venerologist. And then I loved the surgical part. So I had a special training in skin surgery. So I did a lot of skin flaps and transplants, etc. And uh, then phlebology was so exciting as well. In most of the countries, the varicose vein surgeries, which we call the crossectomy and the stripping, is in the hand of the vascular surgeons. In Germany, it's in the hand of the dermatologist. So I did over 1,800 crossectomies with strippings in Germany in a a vein factory. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
2: (laughs) So I was in a very specialized uh, hospital for uh, phlebology. And uh, yeah, there I got my satisfaction for the surgical part as well. And then went into hair transplant and uh, specialized in skin cancer, in allergology, because allergology, proctology is also in Germany in the hand of the, of the dermatologist. So that's where Pekka got then her holistic uh, whole body approach and (laughs) yeah uh, yeah. (laughs) uh, yeah, aesthetic of course as well there was always a demand even in germany (laughs) but of course then much more when i came then to dubai (laughs) so here i have to fight to push back the number and percentage of the aesthetic patients so that i don't end up seeing two clinical cases per year (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) now most um people in this field or I guess medicine in general, people tend to these days move into areas of subspecialization where it seems like you've done almost the opposite where you're doing a raft of different treatments. What was your mindset behind that and why is it that you're driven to do so many different things?
2: I think it's... um it's of course always good to be specialized in something and good at something specifically because I also highly believe in that we cannot be the master of everything. And I do send a lot of patients on daily basis to other doctors because I believe for example for hair transplant yes i have an american academy of aesthetic medicine certificate for hair transplant and i know how to do it my results are really not bad but there is a friend of mine another colleague who is doing it the whole day so when i have now hair transplant patients i send to her yeah mm. and uh, so i do have now my my special field of interest which are the injectables aesthetic medicine and especially the injectables but yeah at the beginning i love just to um, have yeah. a little bit more yeah yeah well, variety. It de- i guess Not also it, but it doesn't get boring yeah? yeah so that's also the reason why i love to um to do all these trainings and do workshops and lectures so that it's a very nice balance between clinical expertise and uh, teaching back
0: and why dubai i mean obviously it's an amazing place to live and you know visited many times it's amazing beautiful but w- what was the link did you know anyone there were you offered a job there
2: no to be honest with you Dave, i was just fed up of germany <laughs> so <laughs> i lived my whole life there i um um although my my that's home there is nowhere in the world where i feel more home but it's not a nice home yeah okay. so um uh, i hate the weather and uh, somehow the weather also changes the the facial expression of the population so they also look rainy and cloudy and sad <laughs> so i um yeah people may not believe but my first um, main reason to move to dubai was the weather mm-hmm. and then i also wanted to have a little bit of um, um wider view and uh, meet different cultures and i knew that dubai like for example singapore is a place where a lot of expats are living so i wanted to be a little bit more in contact with different cultures and and uh, yeah expat uh, community which is really ideal here in Dubai.
1: So all of your training or most of your training took place in in Germany, in Europe, and then you've moved to Dubai. What was the major, I guess, cultural differences and even aesthetic differences in terms of what patients are demanding, what treatments were on trend? How did that sort of differ for you?
2: Yeah, that was really a very, very huge challenge because when I came to Dubai, I had a very German brain and (laughs) I wanted to implement this here and I wanted to change the mindset (laughs) until I realized either I'm gonna, I'm gonna go crazy. Either I have to go back to Germany. So back to my comfort zone or I have a little bit then here to, uh, to adjust. And that's what I did at the end. And I'm very uh, grateful for this experience, though it was not easy. Um, it starts even with the way how we do a consultation. So in Germany, we explain everything from A to Z patient usually wants to know everything, why something happens, what were the causes and, uh, which stage are they right now? It doesn't matter. Even if it's about aging or it's about skin cancer, they want to know everything about it. Then they want to have a treatment plan. They want to know uh, the, the progress, the, the, how it will develop and the, and just literally everything. Whereas the m- typical Middle Eastern or Emirati patient, <laughs> not interested in any of this information they stop listening to you which will then annoy you of course when you're scientifically explaining so perfectly and, and they are just not interested so they just want this very friendly chat with you and it should not be even related to their issues <laughs> so um and uh, they just want very straightforward to know uh what they should do and when, and maybe how much it costs. Yeah. But this question even is sometimes not, uh, not asked. So yeah, it was a real challenge to change that. And, um, uh, when I came to Dubai, actually, I didn't move to Dubai. I moved to Al Ain. Al Ain is a very small city, which belongs actually to Abu Dhabi. Mm. Very, very traditional expat community, less than 5%. And um, I was in the Johns Hopkins uh, University Hospital there. And uh, this hospital was only... Dedicated for Emirati patients and not for expats. So I was purely seeing very traditional um, uh, Emiratis, and uh, yeah, it was a really uh, a big challenge. So then I moved from Al Ain after two years to Dubai, where I actually then arrived there where I wanted to arrive. Where here in Dubai we have I checked this morning the um, uh, Emirati population is fourteen uh, percent. Right. So it means eighty six percent expats.
1: Right, and where where are most people from? Like, what is what makes yeah, up the? That-
2: really, yeah, we really can't say where most of them are because it's a very very mixed uh, population uh, of uh, we have um, from all around the world. Yeah, over one hundred twenty different countries.
0: And Pego, yes. very briefly, just tell us about your journey into injectables. Obviously, you know, you're a cosmetic derm and, you know, you're a global key opinion leader for Alligan. I know you've gone through the MD Code mentorship with Maurizio. I'm sort of on that path now. I'm sort of a few years behind you. But tell us, you know, very briefly about what your practice looks like and, and sort of uh, what you're up to.
2: Yeah. So, uh, I started very early in Germany, actually with the injectables. I found it very interesting. Um, in Germany, I went to many different uh, conferences and workshops just to learn more and more about it. And it started actually very simple. At that time I did not even have the idea to be one day a trainer. So I was still really very keen and eager just to learn more about the injectables. And, um, I started 20 years ago to inject, don't calculate my age, and <laughs> uh, I started when I was 16. Um, so, uh, and then that time, you know, Jake, the interesting thing is, I'm telling this story to so many people, that uh, the first filler syringe I had in the hand, guess what it was?
0: I'm going to say was, collagen. It,
2: yeah. was, <laughs> it was Radius. Ah. Yeah. It was not even hyaluronic acid, so it was radius. and even when later on then we had Perlane and Restylane still nobody, even in Germany although I went really to very good places to learn and to have my workshops and conferences and, and trainings but no one was ever talking about the actual difference because for us now the main difference when we talk about radius and HA is you can dissolve HA and you can't dissolve it radius Yeah, no one was talking about that, they were just talking about the effect and the longevity so I did not even know that if something goes wrong that i cannot dissolve or that i can dissolve and that there is a difference yeah Yeah. so um and i have to say it doesn't have only a disadvantage when you know from the beginning you can't mess it (laughs) you automatically probably inject more careful you know yeah
1: yeah absolutely (laughs) um middle east as a region yeah you have Let's, 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 um, maybe let's introduce the audience a little bit to the Middle East. Now you've put down a whole lot of facts and interesting, uh, bits and pieces about the Middle East. So do you want to, I'm not going to try and remember it. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I'm going to try and try and summarize because this is episode
0: five yes. of our beauty of the world and we're going to concentrate on Dubai and Middle East. So this is just random stats. Don't hold me if these aren't um, absolutely accurate, Pega. but we think there's around 450 million people across 17 countries, something like that. It's
1: a lot of people. Um,
0: Clearly, um, you know, it's the centre of the world for at least three of the world's most major religions, so presumably has that that has an impact on culture beauty beauty standards and all the things that we're going to be speaking about um there's some really big um populated countries like turkey iran if you want to include turkey in that i'm not sure if you, you would um iraq and then you got some tiny countries like lebanon and qatar and bahrain and kuwait so you know depending on where you are maybe there's more money more things available um and maybe there are different cultures i don't know so, Pega, you know your your Persian background, and yet you lived in Germany all your life, and then you moved to Dubai. First of all, how did you feel as a kind of a non Middle Eastern person, but who looks Middle Eastern? How did you, you know, <laughs> was that weird for you? Because people may assume, ah, yeah, oh, she exactly. knows everything. And yet-
2: exactly. That was a double challenge yeah? that people expected from me to behave like a Middle Eastern trained doctor. Uh, but then it didn't just come across. So, uh, so it was really a big challenge. But again, I'm very grateful for this experience, although it was not easy to learn, um, about these different cultures because again, as I said, I'm not only here seeing the Middle Eastern typical, uh, patient. I'm seeing here, um, Australians um uh, I'm seeing here uh far eastern uh patients Japanese Chinese uh Thai uh, uh Malay um name it uh, Indian uh Pakistanis Afghanis, Iranians um Europeans a lot of Europeans uh different countries and South Africans North Africans <laughs> Americans so really across all the countries and not only that I'm seeing and treating them um here um I also, for my trainings, I traveled across many, many different uh, countries and uh, continents. So I have covered almost uh, all the continents, Not and just to name a few, where I had um, um, my workshops for Allergan or for American Academy of Aesthetic Medicine who's um a senior faculty uh trainer i am as well so australia singapore hong kong thailand malaysia indonesia china india uae oman bahrain kuwait iran egypt saudi um, (laughs) uh, london u.s yeah so um you have every time to switch yeah you can't even say okay far eastern countries they all want to have the same features no you have really to differentiate when when you go there a couple of times you may think okay malaysia Indi- uh, indonesia uh, neighbors same 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 maybe even religion yeah no there is a huge difference between the ideal of beauty in uh in uh, kuala lumpur and in bali yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, the journey was very interesting and um Again, here I see many different um, uh, cultures and ideals of beauty. Um, but one thing what I realized is, which is very interesting, that it's not really related to the religion. It's more related to the culture. Because mm. within, within the same religion, but you can have different cultures, even here in UAE, which I mentioned in Al Ain, is so different, much more traditional um, than here in Dubai, and one reason is because they are very, um, yeah, mixed with expats, and they live for many, many years with expats together. They travel much more to European, um, um, US um, um, than, for example, other regions.
0: Yeah.
2: And um, another thing, two other things I have also realized, which is very interesting, is that the number of the population, for example, let's say a country has a um, 80 million and the other one has eight. That doesn't mean that the number of the people undergoing a procedure is proportional, is very unproportional. And you mentioned the right country, for example, Lebanon, yeah, with their little, uh, little small population, but The percentage of the population undergoing a procedure (laughs) is probably uh, 20 times higher than in some other, maybe in Oman, for example. That's actually
0: a good point. We've got a big Lebanese population here in Sydney and some of my most sort of loyal patients. They're they're very glamorous, very into their aesthetic. And there's only, I believe, six million people in Lebanon anyway. So, you know, it's just the like you say, it's the culture rather than maybe the populace that
2: dictates things. Exactly. And another point which I, which I realized as well regarding the wealth. Yes, there is a huge difference between the wealth in the different countries here in Middle East. But again, it's very unproportioned to how much they, they put their budget for the aesthetic. You, you have a country. I don't want to name now, but you have a country every catastrophe in the world happens to that country yeah, and they are really poor and they, you only hear in the news. They don't have, uh, you know, um, uh, money even to, you know, uh, to survive or to eat or whatsoever. And then you see that's, that the patients have always enough, enough budget for their beauties just because they value, yeah. they value the, yeah, yeah. The, the beauty.
1: So you were saying that um, culture... Yeah, well, you were saying that mm-hmm. culture is what dictates the aesthetic that people um, are exactly. after. So is there a Dubai culture where where you might have people who are expats, people from the Middle East, people from Europe like yourself, where you're all aspiring toward, I guess, the same aesthetic principles or looks, or is it still very much dependent on your ethnic background and your ind- individual features?
2: Yeah. What I observed over the last 20 years with the different cultures is that thanks God. And I hope that this also would transfer or translate one day into the political (laughs) level that we are somehow unifying. So the difference between the German patient and the Emirati patient was unbelievable. It was almost the opposite. 20 years ago where because I had also in Germany sometimes Middle Eastern patient and now my German patient and my Middle Eastern patients somehow they are not the same but they came very very near to and that's because of I think it's of course also the social media the internet so that um The trend is somehow unifying. That's at least, I don't know what's your experience, but, um, it's somehow getting more and more similar. And what I now in, what does it mean in detail? So the trend before here, like 20 years ago, the traditional traditional beauty idol of let's say uae or middle east was to have a very round face to not have edges to not have contours that was considered as very masculine Mm -hmm. so when when someone wants to give a lady a compliment they would say you look like moon (laughs) round like moon imagine yeah (laughs) so uh, this is about the face shape so even even the face and the neck the contour should be very soft and there should not be a defined jawline and then very huge big eyes although Um, uh, ethnically they already have very big eyes compared to other cultures but they, they even with makeup and with surgeries would like to have the eyes even bigger and the eyebrows are almost as important as the eyes, where eyebrows are in many, many other countries and cultures not even considered. Why do I talk about eyebrows here um, among doctors? Because nowadays the eyebrows are not only manipulated by makeup, they are also very manipulated by plastic surgeons and by dermatologists, yeah? By uh, pulling them and shaping them with... um, with the uh, um, endoscopic forehead or eyebrow lifts, with fillers, with all the different threads, with all the different tools which we have. So the shape should be a very arched, Um, arched and long and prominent eyebrow then the lips should be of course very prominent very high cheekbones again prominent full cheeks but the nose should be very uh, fine and uh, small and demarcated and uh, the skin color very important the whiter the more pale the skin color is the better it is I think this comes from hundred years ago where man supposed actually to work uh, on the fields or outside and the, yeah. the fine lady does not require really to to work outside so she can afford to stay at home and not be exposed to the sun. that's where it comes from. So And the trend has immensely changed. Now, the Emirati ladies, they tan their skin. They like to, to be more tanned and more brownish. The eyebrows, thanks God, are coming down. <laughs> and, and the lip size and the cheek size are getting more and more modest into the more, yeah. more natural look. And on the other side, the German patient who was extremely conservative and she would love to, to share the one syringe uh, lip filler with her uh, five neighbors <laughs> so she wants now the whole syringe in her lips so we are somehow coming into the same line
1: <laughs> yeah it's kind of interesting it? sometimes we see it here in australia too you know there was this trend where people want there's still some people that want that very exaggerated look but it feels like sometimes you have to go too far to realize you've gone too far to go oh and now exactly. you're seeing it being paired back to some more aspiration towards natural look. Are you finding that with your practice too? Yeah.
0: I I think patients have realize themselves that they have to understand the bitter to understand the sweet yes. <laughs> it's almost <laughs> like they need to be shown or well, well, they've shown themselves that when they demand lips 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 cheeks lips you know if the injector kept on delivering that eventually the, the patient themselves would understand wow i'm, I'm getting filler migration my, my face is distorting i just want to go back to a little bit more of a natural aesthetic with a you know, kind of a beautification but not an augmentation sort of look. Um, Peg, I wanted to ask you, you said, of course, lips are sort of quite popular in, in the Middle East, but, but why? Because we see that with all of our Middle Eastern patients here in Sydney. I used to see a lot of um, Arabic patients in London when I was there. And it's just, the it's seen as beautiful, but I I, I, just, I want us to try and understand why.
2: Yeah, in the Middle East in general, um, it's very important to be extremely feminine. Mm-hmm. So, and lip and eye are the two, I believe the two major aspects in the face, which can show the feminine look. So that's why it's, um, I think very important to have, uh, very full lips, but which again, as you said, uh, thanks God the trend is going a little bit back and now we are more dissolving than uh,
0: injecting. (laughs) I also ask a question, this may sound kind of naive, but I just want, this is really for the listeners. Is there a big difference between your Arab patients and your Persian patients? I know, you know, joking aside, we've got friends of of both sides and they jokingly have this sort of bitter rivalry, but it's, you know, between them, it's kind of quite nice because they're friends now. But what's the different sort of um, aesthetic Uh, wants and needs between the two or is it very similar?
2: Yeah. So, um, They are, of course, more similar than compared to the European or Far Eastern patient, definitely. But um, as beauty is for Lebanese and Iranian patients, really number one subject. And that also shows in the number of the plastic surgeries Mm -hmm. they undergo. Uh, So as an Iranian, if you don't have your first nose drop at the age of 18 and the revision before the age of 35, (laughs) you lose your your naturalization and your passport, yeah? Yeah. So that's that's very clear. And uh, that's why I didn't reach 35 yet. (laughs) uh, (laughs) So, um, um, but the Iranians are... A step ahead so yeah. the iranians follow faster the international trend this is what i observe than the rest of the countries in middle east so when the iranian patient is coming to me and telling me and oh, now i want also the angelina jolie uh jawline or the texas jawline or now i want the fox eye i don't know if the fox yeah. eye oh, yes eye. we have you know, that here it, Okay. Okay. (laughs) Very good. The Nefertiti lift and this and that. So with all these international (laughs) terminologies, then a couple of, years later or sometimes just months later than the other countries are following yes there is a threat (laughs) so iranians you think they are under sanction they don't know what's happening around the world oh they know it better than we do
1: (laughs) (laughs) just to get back on um the topic of the more naturalized look how do you or how did you or how do you still combat that issue with patients that want to push for that exaggerated look how do you as a practitioner as a doctor as someone that cares for your patients how do you I guess, try to convince them or have that consult to make them go more down that natural path? Because I think it's something that a lot of injectors struggle with, that they feel that there's a responsibility as the provider to actually start pushing back Mm -hmm. a little bit and you know in some ways trying to get the patient to trust them that they're making the right decision and they're the ones that have got the training and the skill. How, How do you combat that?
2: Yeah, David, I was impatiently waiting for that question.
1: (laughs) Okay, (laughs) wait no longer. We're here.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I made that to my life, life, um, um, yeah, mission. Yeah. Exactly. This is my life mission. I don't want to leave this life before I have made a major change. And I truly believe uh, being a trainer and being able to travel around the world and do teaching, I may have a good chance to do that. And I think if each of us, Jake, will just participate to that, we can then make really a huge difference. I want to turn this trend. I want to, um, I and we have to start with, the H, um, uh, HCPs, it's not the mistake of the patient. The patient cannot take the syringe and inject herself or himself. It's us who are doing it. So if we don't do it, if we collectively refuse to inject and if we are collectively not scared to lose patient and revenue and make the patient upset, then we will get rid of all these unnatural looks. So in Iran, they have even a terminology for it. So all this extreme, exaggerated, lips and eyebrows and eye shapes these girls are called palang (laughs) palang palang means tiger because tiger (laughs) yeah so tiger has a little bit of an exaggerated exotic yes exactly exaggeration so and um i will not leave this uh uh, world before i make sure that the palang generation died wow interesting (laughs) so uh, yeah. So how do I do it? No, yes. joking aside, how do I do that? Um, thanks God, I achieved already, um, I think a very good level so that no one, that when patients come in and they are worried that they will have an unnatural look, I tell them, have you seen anybody in my waiting area, including the reception and the nurses who are walking around with an exaggerated unnatural look? So meanwhile, Everyone in UAE and Middle East knows if you want to have that exaggerated, unnatural look, don't waste your time with Pega. Don't go to her. You're not going to get it. So I have the reputation here that I give them a very natural look. We follow, as you know, Jake, our emotional and social attributes, yeah, as per the MD codes. Uh, um, and uh, we just give them a positive aging Without looking exaggerated. So, how do I convince the patient? I let the patient talk first. So, I never start to talk. I want to understand first what is her vision? How does she see her own face? How does she perceive herself? How much self confidence does she have? And what does she want from me? What is her expectation? So, that's why I just let them talk. And then I know after five or 10 minutes when they finish. What does she want? And will do? Am I willing to deliver that result to her or am I able to deliver that result to her? That's where the decision comes. Do I treat the patient or I don't treat the patient? And of course, I'm not going to hold a lecture then for her. You have no idea. And this will look unnatural. And you already look very unnatural. So I do it in a, try to do it in a diplomatic way that I say, um, I, you do not need that extra and it would look better on you if we just enhance your own beauty and not add more and uh, by that time you usually already un- understand and uh, if they still insist to have bigger lips and then I just I'm just very honest with them and I tell them that I don't know how to make you happier mm. so I don't I don't understand exactly what you want to change and I'm not able to give you that result. That's what I say. So which patient wants to be treated by a doctor who doesn't know how to give the result? (laughs) And that's how my um the satisfaction rate of my patients increased touch wood to 99.99%. So because I just don't treat any more patients where I'm not 150% sure that we are on the same page and that we are aligned with the vision, what should be done and uh, uh, what should not be done.
0: Yeah, I think that's really and good advice. Also,
2: yeah, that also shows in the number of the male patients. So I have the number of the male patient increase incredibly, uh, exponential actually. Again, it's just the word of mouth. So I treat one one male patient and no one notice. So they, he will tell to his brother and his brother, to his colleague, his colleague, to his neighbor. So especially here, it's not nice for the Emirati man. To, to be recognized as a filler or Botox man. so And meanwhile, um, I treat um, Emirati male uh, patients who are working in very high level in the government and they go back to their board meetings right after the injection and they come and they do it with peace because they know that they will look very natural and no one would know um, that they have just done mm. some fillers
0: perfect timing. I was just going to ask you about men. What's their attitude to sort of personal care and of course facial aesthetics? You said that they want a conservative look, but my impression always when I'm in, in Dubai is that the guys are really well-groomed, that they're, they're into their fashion, they look good. Um, so what are they asking you for from an aesthetic injectable?
2: Yeah, this is also a very interesting uh, question, Jake, because I have not seen any in any other country or culture, men who take care more of themselves than the Emirati men, even the other Middle Eastern. I would say in general, in Middle East, men take more care of themselves. They care more about their youthfulness and uh, beauty and being handsome than other continents like Europe. Um, but especially in The Emirati men, exactly like your observation, is correct. They take a lot of care. The reason they didn't go into injectables was really because they were just scared. They don't want to look unnatural. And um, yeah, so that was the only reason. Otherwise, exactly as you say, grooming, who goes, I mean, in uh, in the European countries every single day to the barber and they have this perfect beard shape. Mm. All of them are lasered in the face so that the beard really looks very um, yeah, accurate and uh, straight. And they do also a lot of plastic surgical um, uh, procedures. And meanwhile, also, since they know that it's all, there is also a way to be injected with fillers in a very natural way and they will look more masculine, The the trend is, of course, increasing a lot because the Middle Eastern man usually does not have a very strong, well-developed chin. In most of the patients, the chin is very underdeveloped, Uh, contrary to, for example, Eastern European men who have beautiful, sharp uh, uh, contours and well-developed jaw. Yeah, so here is quite uh, the opposite. So when they see that they look even more masculine and they are not feminized with the fitters, then... Yeah. And-
0: I just thought of mm-hmm. another question that I hadn't really anticipated. How do, how do men feel about, you know, culturally, I know it's different, and being injected by a female injector? Is there any ever any objection? Or do female patients want to see a female doctor and so on?
2: Yeah, the good thing is that female patients prefer female doctor and male patients also prefer female doctor. <laughs>
0: Okay, fair enough.
2: (laughs) That's why I'm stuck here. Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, interesting. Is that because the men don't want to sort of, you know, almost admit to another man that they're into their looks? Is that what it is?
2: What I realize is because meanwhile, I have a very good relationship to all my patients They're very loyal they are coming for the last thirteen years, regardless which city or which clinic i'm working they're walking with me so um, meanwhile, when I ask them why they say that they really believe that a woman has a more gentle so you know men are a little bit worried about the pain and the discomfort, maybe a little bit more than than women, so they believe that that uh, um, woman can inject more gent. <laughs> a bit more uh, a
1: bit more of that nurturing element yeah. yeah so like in australia for example a lot of our cultural trends are led by social media influences like instagram or famous models or you know people like the kardashians and paris hilton or maybe not so much anymore but in, time, in in time, in, time <laughs> in times gone by what is it that what is it that's leading social trends over in in dubai and who are people looking to
2: Yeah. So it's a mix of the international influencers, like you named it, Kim Kardashian, for example, Who also visited me a couple of years ago here Mm -hmm. in my clinic. Uh, But also a mix of the Arab models. So we have also a lot of Arab, um, Middle Eastern models who are leading. But I have to say that they look more or less the same. So there is not a huge difference if you compare the European idol or influencers in social media with the Middle Eastern one. Middle Eastern one has maybe a little bit more makeup, a little bit stronger colors and uh, maybe a tiny little bit more volume in the lips or cheeks or a tiny little bit bigger eyes, but the rest is more or less top And
0: can I ask, um, this may sound like a bit of a, paradox but but i've noticed it you know middle eastern women of course if they wear a scarf they tend to dress more conservatively however like you just said makeup can be extremely heavy beautiful you know manicure and jewelry and you know facial aesthetics is you know perfect and it's almost like there's a mixture of conservatism mixed with ultra glam it's it's kind of a paradox so you know is that something that middle eastern women aspire to or is that just come about more recently because of you know trends or has, has it always been that way
2: Yeah very interesting question as well so when i came here although my parents are originally iranian but i did not i I was not living in Iran, so I did not know what it means for a lady who is covered and you just see the face. And even in some areas, like for example, in Al Ain, where I started to work, some of the women even had this niqab, so where they cover, actually they look like, we look now all with the masks yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. so um and i was always thinking why should they then do something why should they then put so much effort in uh, in their beauty it's exactly the opposite because because they just show the face so their whole focus is then the face and then I thought they would not really take care of the rest. Uh, but it's not like that because we only see them in the public. Um, it's the same in Iran as well. and uh, But the, their life in the public is not even how. It's maybe just 30% of, their, of, of, of the day mm-hmm. they would spend. Than in the public, the other seventy percent they are not. So when they are at home or they are visiting uh, friends who are female, so they remove their scarf, they remove their their, their abaya, their so they they do care much more about themselves and their beauty than uh, we assume. So that's not, um, um, yeah, that's not a, a reason for them to not take care. Mm.
1: Yeah. Okay. And um, as I sort of alluded to in, in the previous question about social media, is, is that something, you know, things like Instagram, is that, I guess, dictating the way trends are going, what people are wanting? You know, we've had some discussions on this podcast with, with various doctors and people who work on the psychology side of things as well, is that sometimes social media with filters and people taking hundreds of photos of themselves, it's sort of creating a bit of an unrealistic expectation that people then put on themselves as to how they should look because they're comparing themselves sometimes to people that aren't real or photos that have been highly curated. Do you have that same issue um, in Dubai as well? Is it sort of more, I guess, universal?
2: Yes, absolutely the same. I think the the number of different filters which are existing here at apps is far more even, you know, and more common, Mm. more common than anywhere else. So yes, Instagram, before it was Facebook, now it's really Instagram, before it was Snapchat, and now TikTok is leading. <laughs> so uh, absolutely, absolutely they are following and everyone wants to look filtered. And there are clinics, they're advertising, with this treatment, you look like your filter. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's ironic, isn't it? <laughs> it's ridiculous.
0: Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask a question. Um, you know as injectors we're often taught and, and we've discussed this on the on the other beauty of the world um, episodes as an injector when we talk about um you know approaching someone from a particular ethnic background for example afro-caribbean or indian or asian you know we, we learn some principles and it may be a little bit simplistic and and, and a bit silly you, you mentioned before that there are you know micro niche differences between even neighboring countries in in asia for example but how would you approach a middle eastern face if you could summarize it in a very stereotype way because obviously it's different depending on the face
2: now contour contour is very important Uh, as i said they would like to look like their filter or they would like to look now like uh, after having a professional makeup having a professional makeup is something very common here in germany you have it maybe once on your wedding day Mm. yeah and here on the weekend when you go on a party, you have your makeup done by a professional makeup artist. And there is no other country where you can compare the service like here in Dubai. Yeah, You just call and the makeup artist and the hairstylist comes to your home. They do your hair and your makeup and then they go. Yeah, that's how it works. Um, It's one, for example, one very famous um, app is called uh, Blow Out and Go and Glow. (laughs) And go. Yeah. So so and now they want to look le- and because it's something very, very common to have this professional makeup on daily basis everywhere, even if there is an their small event or 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 a party or birthday. So people see how much they can change um, with makeup. So and we are creating exactly the same, yeah, it's just last then longer. So Contour is very important, contoured cheeks, what we create with our cheek uh, foundation code, CK1, CK2, CK3, and the jawline, seven and nine uh, point uh, lift is very, or the Angelina Jolie, uh, Texas jawline is very um, common and famous here, but still, still full lips. However, you hear more and more and more, of course, about the Russian lip nowadays. Yeah. yeah? yeah. Yeah, you probably as well. Um, So lips are still... Uh, in trend to be fuller. Uh, However, patients are more careful about the product, which kind of product they they choose and they make sure that they don't have anything permanent, no permanent injectables anymore. And uh, yeah, nose rhinoplasty is one of the most common uh, um, surgeries to have a very demarcated small nose. But yeah, these are mainly the trend and of course the eyes. Very prominent um, uh, arched eyebrows. And uh, big eyes, uh, cat or fox. Mm.
0: Yeah, so I mean, uh, D- does non surgical nose jobs form a big part of your practice, or do people just prefer to go under the knife and get it done?
2: No, of course, the trend goes into non-surgical rhinoplasty. So, even the plastic surgeons are doing now a lot more injectables to correct the nose rather than surgeries. Many patients prefer, of course, to not undergo the surgery. Yeah.
1: So, who would be your, I guess, typical average patient? Like, So, I guess maybe to compare that in Australia here so we you know we tend to got tend to have I guess two major categories when you're looking at it in terms of who makes up the two major groups so you've got your younger patients that might be 18 to 25 that maybe want a bit more of a bolder look a bit more extreme in terms of you know how much products being used and the look they're going for versus say someone that's you know 30 to 50 wants to look natural more about restorative beauty than exaggerated so what's your top typical patient profile
2: Yeah, that's the beauty of Dubai, that there is no patient. Every single day and every patient who walks in is so different than the other one. I have an age range between, um, yeah, it can be even below 18, which I don't inject, of course. So 18 to 80. I had recently an 80 and 83 year old uh, sisters coming from uh, Switzerland for their injection wow. <laughs> and they were completely injectable virgin. They have never done anything. They they were flying in just for the treatment and going back. So the age could be anything. It could be men, it could be woman. and it could be really from any country in this world and what they want is also again different some come with very specific demands i only want to have this profits removed yeah and the other one comes and says no i want to look just younger and look fresher and then the third one comes and says i don't know what i need you tell me what i should do
0: yeah I think you mentioned you've got a, a reasonably large male practice, but what do you think your ratio is um for your general injector and divide? I don't mean just you, but do you think the ratio is still you know ninety ten women or is it more men?
2: It started with of course one percent and ninety nine percent and meanwhile easy forty wow. percent men and
0: sixty. 60- wow forty percent that's by far the biggest uh ratio it. that we've had. I-
2: Yes, absolutely, and uh, most of them, I would say, from the 40%, at least um, at least 28% um, are Middle Eastern.
1: Wow. And what are these men typically getting done? You sort of alluded before that you know a lot of them are getting masculinization, so their chin and jawline probably. What else are they getting?
2: That's also a very good question because most of them, most of them come for frontline. line. Botox.
1: Wow. Okay, it all yeah. starts there.
2: And, uh, and they and they leave the clinic with 12 ml of uh, fillers. <laughs>
1: You've clearly <laughs> yeah. been
0: trained by Maritz, yeah? <laughs> yeah, I would
2: yeah? I would never shock them because that's really then um, um, a mental trauma for them. So they need to digest it very gradually. So this is how it works, right? So you mentioned also before that everyone is asking for lips. It's just because people don't know what else to do. So, and uh, typically our population thinks when I'm getting old, um, the first thing I should start with is Botox. And then after many, many years, when Botox is not doing the job anymore, then I can maybe think about the filler. Don't know why, but maybe it's because Botox was first, you know, more Mm -hmm. more common or popular. And then a couple of years later, people started to hear about filler injections. So men still also think that the Botox is more natural and less visible if I do it rather than going for filler because they associate with filler injections, big lip and big cheek and being looking more feminine. So they, that's why they come just for the front line or even for the crow feet or for the horizontal forehead line. So, and uh, that's where uh, my consultation comes and in place. So I always insist whoever books, even if they threaten us that <laughs> if I don't get my procedure done in the same time, then I'm not going to come. I'm a businessman and this and that, and I don't have time. I refuse to do the procedure at the same time. Mm. And I insist, regardless how long is the, the waiting list um, waiting time, I insist to have a 45 minutes consultation for the new patient yeah. because that's where I give all my, all my knowledge and my, my uh, uh, life mission yeah, comes then into place. And that's where I sound now negative, but it's not, I brainwash them. So I <laughs> explain to them from A to Z so that they and, I don't even tell them you need filler, you don't need Botox. I make it in a way that at the end, I ask them, do you think you need now? Do you think you need the frown line Botox? No. <laughs> do you think you just need to look more masculine and stronger and look more trustworthy and less tired? Yes. So then let's start. And I always start with 2ML. With a new patient, I don't inject more, even if they say I have an open budget, I don't have time, I want to get everything done. I just know that it's too much for them. Even if they feel good and they feel that it looks very natural, the moment they go out, the swelling is a little bit more with six syringes than with two syringes. Then uh, if anyone tells them, What happened to you? What did you do? They they might then immediately feel a little bit insecure, even if they like the result, but you know they they don't like the reaction Mm. of uh, of the environment. So that's why I always start with two. Then I'm on the safe side. I know I will not receive in the late evening the call. What did you do to me? (laughs) Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah. And I think that's a really interesting point. Is that well? I'm not a medical practitioner, but I'm involved in the industry and I've been you know, working with people like Jake for many years. So I understand it becomes very natural and normal to us. But I think that for patients that, especially men having this treatment for the first time, it's quite confronting that there is a process of, you know, getting used to it. You know, your face has changed, you know, people are noticing though. It's, I think it's, you know, really um, intelligent and, and sort of responsible to take things very slowly and let people sort of, you know, acclimate to these sorts of treatments. Yeah,
0: definitely. I mean, mine's very similar to yours, Pega. I, I mean, I don't have a limit on two. I, I guess I might go up to three, but rarely I'll do more than that. But I definitely spend about an hour with new patients. And I like using toxins as a gateway sort of treatment. You know, you know, it's very simple, less swelling, less downtime. They get used to sort of something changing on their face. And then the second consultation, we can maybe do some filler. So yeah, but very similar, very similar. Um, yeah, I-
2: I do the Botox, of course, yeah. And if they have a front line which can be treated, if it's not very deeply static line, of course I treat it as well. I just want them to understand that a horizontal forehead line in a a 48-year-old man is not the reason that he looks not attractive. So (laughs) I always give them, I always give them the example. Look at the Armani and Boss models who are 28 on the, on the catwalk. They all have forehead, horizontal forehead lines. Yeah. Yeah. So that's not. But lets you look tired or or uh, aged or sagging. And then at the end of the day, if they want their Botox, of course they get it as well.
0: <laughs> 100%. Now, who's allowed to administer cosmetic injectables in, in Dubai at least? And then what about the other countries? Is it very dermatologists and plastic surgeon-led or, or can nurses inject?
2: Yeah, I was always so proud of um, uh, UAE that until... I think it was two years ago, two or three years ago. No one, except a plastic surgeon or dermatologist, was allowed to touch a Botox vial or a syringe of hyaluronic acid.
0: Now you know that that's quite controversial here in Australia. So I'm just <laughs> gonna I'm gonna voice that now. <laughs>
2: Exactly. We were always shocked to hear that Australia, England, US, that nurses and even beauticians are using even fillers. So not even a simple Botox for a forehead line, another doctor would be allowed to inject. So, But a couple of years, I think it's two or three years ago, they allow now all the other physicians to Mm -hmm. inject. But definitely not nurse, definitely not beauticians. All the patients prefer to have their fillers and Botox done by plastic surgeons and dermatologists.
0: Sure. I mean, you could sort of understand the patient perspective that their kind of imagination is, well, a plastic surgeon knows what he's doing. He does cosmetic stuff all the time. Makes sense. But can I just explore your... Um worry, I guess, that um, maybe other, you know, whether it's other physicians or, or nurses or in the States, we've got um, physician's assistants, I believe. So w- at what point do, do you sort of delineate skill or or, or, or or why do you feel strongly that others shouldn't do it? Uh,
2: to be honest with you, I would never dare to say that uh, per se, a gynecologist or a dentist is not able to inject because what I what I learned, learned how to inject I did not need my dermatology as a program for it. Yes, right? Did not need that. And if I'm a dermatologist, who injects two patients per month. And if there is a GP who had the same training in aesthetic medicine like I had, and this doctor is, or even more, and this doctor is injecting patients uh, per day, of course he is more skilled and he's better than me. Yep. So the only reason is, I think the only justification to keep it for specific um, specialities is that if we give it into the hand of everyone, it's like the the you know the we call it like the hot chocolate, yeah. So because everybody knows it's easy, it's fast, you can make a lot of money with it, and it's, there is a huge demand. So people forget about their practice. There are so many doctors they don't work anymore as ENT. They don't work as a general surgeon. They are just focusing on aesthetic. I think that's a little bit what's a bit irresponsible, you know, for the whole, uh, yeah, for the community.
0: So your main that's worry is sort of uh, dilution of, you know, the yeah. the, the healthcare providers
1: yeah.
2: rather
0: than anyone's particular skill.
2: Exactly.
1: So 70% of the injecting that's done in Australia is done by nurses.
2: No way. It would
1: be 70%. And, I mean, probably Jake can speak to this better than I can. I, I don't, I haven't seen any any literature or anything that shows that nurses have a higher complication rate than doctors.
0: No, and and we explored
1: this uh,
0: with uh, Lee Walker. I don't know if you know Lee Walker. He's um, a, a trainer for Tioxane, and obviously in the UK it's the, it's the ex- sort of extreme example where anyone can inject with impunity. You know, beauticians and well, even non-beauticians, anyone literally could inject fillers, and you know of course, it was a sort of a similar argument, but sort of down down the ladder of, well, you know, nurses, doctors and dentists should do it, but no one else should. And then I asked him the question, well, you know that that sounds logical someone with zero medical background probably shouldn't do it whereas you could argue either way who else should but there's actually yeah. no data to support that you know any particular group whether it's dentists doctors nurses or anyone else has a mm-hmm. higher complication
1: rate you would assume so
0: anecdotally
1: well actually i would i would expect that nurses would have a rec- higher recorded complication rate because they still have to go through a scripting doctor so when they when they get something that goes wrong you would think that they have to report it to the doctor that's written the script, and that would somehow be recorded somewhere, whereas maybe doctors who don't need to get a script from a third party might be in a position where they can be a little more quiet about the number of complications that they're getting. I guess we're getting into dangerous territory no, now no, this no. discussion. Um, it's,
0: it's actually a good question. I mean, you know, even here in Australia, if... You know, let's say I had a complication of vascular occlusion or something with a filler. It's my duty to report that to Allergan or, or or whichever filler I want to use. Um, it's not like by law or anything, yeah. but I, I should just for the statistics and and so that they can sort of check that you know the batch of filler's is okay and and do all their sort of due diligence. But um, yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I know many very highly skilled nurses and I know lots of doctors who I would argue probably shouldn't have a syringe in their hand because. I've seen them inject, and it's not great. So you know, you know, a bit a little bit. Uh, I'll start again. A little bit like what you said in your introduction, Pega. When you're a dermatologist in Germany, you are doing quite a lot of stuff, including phlebology, that in other countries they'd raise their eyebrows at. So I think it's just different countries have different training and and different expectations, and some yeah. norms in in some countries are just different. But um, yeah, it, we come back to the same question that we've discussed on the podcast many times, which is how do we train people or who should we train? What is the syllabus and how do we prove competence? That's
1: really the crux of this question. And I don't have an answer. I don't think anyone has an answer. It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because it's it's quite a sensitive topic because, you know, there are are some people who make um, claims or jump up and down about certain groups who should or shouldn't be doing certain things. And, you know, maybe there's a valid reason for some of it. Some of it's commercially driven as well. People don't like the fact that other people are encroaching on their commercial territory and they will then say, Oh, it's for patient safety, and they'll where they're not being really genuine about it. And I guess part of the problem that you've, you sort of spoke about, Jake, was there is no standard training protocol um, for being a cosmetic injector. So therefore, everyone's saying, "Well, my you know only dermatologists should do it, or only nurses should do it, or only plastic surgeons can do it," and everyone's sort of flying the flag for their own group. But no one has come together and said, "Right." You know, this is an egg that's been scrambled. It's very difficult to unscramble it. So let's look at saying, right, what is the the basic level of competence or medical training that you need to have as a prerequisite before you can continue on? And then look at whether you're a derm, a nurse, a plastic surgeon, cosmetic physician, general surgeon, whatever, you need to go through the same standard training protocol to prove competence. And then at least that way as a community, we can say, well... We've got a standard protocol. We've got a standard minimum requirement for for training, and then we all go on the same training pathway and have to pass the same exams and prove competency, so that you can safely say that no matter what spec, like a, no matter what background they've come from, all these injectors have gone through the same standardised protocol.
0: Yeah, actually, maybe I'll ask you, Pega, because you're a trainer for not only Allegan but a third party. I think you said the American Academy of um, Aesthetic Medicine. So. Uh, who are you training and, and how are you training them and, and how do you guys decide? I, You know, you get your certificate, you're competent, you're safe to go. H- how are you making those decisions?
2: Yeah, so uh, American Academy of Aesthetic Medicine is actually teaching worldwide uh, physicians only in aesthetic medicine. So it includes injectables, which is botulinum toxin and um uh, HA fillers then uh, all the lasers are used in the aesthetic medicine not only lasers also uh, light-based devices like IPL for example or LED then uh, all kinds of mesotherapies PRPs microneedling uh, then cosmetic dermatology which is also includes uh, um, treating scars and marks and uh, um, yeah aesthetic dermatology like pigmentations for example or um, uh, just the skin complexion. Yeah. And uh, so, um, it's a very huge, it's a very, um, huge program, which is divided into three, um, levels. Level one is for beginners who just want to start to learn. So it has been three days of, uh, uh, chemical peel, skin conditioning, initial injections, like simple injections for the Botox and, uh, fillers. We start usually with, uh, uh the, beginner in the beginning um um, just with uh, injecting the nasolabial fold with a cannula, for example. And then in level two, after having six months of uh, training and after having six months of uh, practical experience in their clinics, then they are eligible to come back and take then the level two, which is then the more advanced level. So then we build up on that botulinum toxin injections. We build up on the filler injection with more areas, medium, risk
0: Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and um and the same with the lasers or with the prp so and then the third is then the board exam so after each each uh, level they have done their certificates and usually at least here in dubai but also in many other countries i see that the doctors who had their training with us um that they do announce in social media or in their practices they show that they have the certificate Uh, but it's exactly as you said david it would be So much better and also really fair if you would say you have to go through a specific um, training before you're allowed to inject this or that rather than just restricting it. But because there is no country and there is no rule who is allowed to inject, that's why some countries, they try to restrict it or minimize maybe the, the problem or the risk in just saying, okay, only specific groups are allowed to
0: inject okay fair enough and do you guys have a, a national congress or a, even a regional congress i don't mean with the pharma companies but you know your, your own sort of national congress or, or not really do you just go to things like amwc and MCAS and all the other ones
2: no definitely we have also uh uh, two main national conferences. One is the Dubai Derma and the other one is Dial Diet where we have a lot of, we invite a lot of international speakers too. And I don't want to miss any of them because it's very important also to connect really with your, uh, with your, yeah, national colleagues and, uh, you know, who are practicing here. So, again, we come then back to the regional specifications and what is more wanted and demanded in the Middle East. So um, yeah. And they have very good high quality as well, the conferences.
1: And how are your safety protocols regulated? So what happens if it all goes wrong do you have like a governing body that oversees to make sure that everyone's doing the right thing like in australia we've got apra um and they sort of keep an, an eye on what everyone's doing and you know then step in if, if people need discipline or those issues
2: so we have uh, here dha dubai health authority and uh, they are very good and taking very good care of all the clinics and hospitals um they can visit your clinic and your hospital at any time and they do it on very regular base um, you can get even in the same year five times a DHA visit mm. um, Unannounced. They come without announcement. They knock the door. You open. They check all the licenses of all the doctors. They check the license of every single product, which you are using all the devices. If all the safety measurements for laser rooms or consultation rooms, they are very strict, actually, which I, which I like because then we can guarantee really a high safety uh, profile also for the patients. And it's also good for the patients because if patients um, have any uh, problems or issues with the doctor and they can't solve that, so usually they go then to DHA and uh, can complain then to DHA about their uh, treatment.
0: Excellent. i got a question. If, if I get bored of Australia and I want to come and move to Dubai, am I allowed to inject or how does it work?
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. But um, um, everybody, even if you are a professor and the director of the uh, Dermatology University Hospital in uh, in Sydney uh, and you come to Dubai, you have to undergo another exam. <laughs> oh,
0: really? Okay. So they don't recognize any international qualifications.
2: Before it was, um, yeah, well, they would categorize you. So they have different categories mm-hmm. uh, for example, someone from U S or Canada would have a different category than someone who comes maybe from Pakistan. Um, their exam and uh, so and for example the title as well could be then different regardless how many years of experience you have depends Mm depends on your board certificate you are then you have a different title but everyone has to undergo the same uh, exam and if when you pass the exam then you can practice and uh, injectables everyone every physician is allowed to inject you don't need to prove any special training
1: yeah So I know when Jake came to Australia, um, one of the exams that he had to sit was an English exam, which was ironic (laughs) because he comes from the country that invented English.
0: Well, I didn't Um, have to. I I actually chose to because it was beneficial. Don't
1: you still have to be able to prove that you can speak the native tongue to pass an exam? Not if you're from the UK. Right. So if you went to Dubai, would you have to be able to prove you can speak? Is the national tongue, excuse my ignorance, is it Arabic?
2: well the national language the official language is arabic
1: yes yes. so do you need to speak arabic to be able to pass this exam
2: zero nothing is here in arabic nothing so if you live in dubai as an emirati and you don't speak english you are in trouble right so you can't handle your life actually unless (laughs) you don't, don't walk out yeah but as an expat that's actually a pity because as expats some expats live here 20 30 years and they can barely speak you know arabic it's because it's just not needed anywhere
0: now i'm getting the impression from what you've said about plastics and derms traditionally being the only injectors i'm guessing injectables are only available in hospitals or derm or plastics uh, sort of clinics or or do you have any other sort of third party sort of clinic uh, sort of chain groups or, or any other things outside of that available or is it still very traditional under a doctor in their rooms
2: it's only allowed to be injected in a clinic or in the hospital by a doctor
0: yeah i could see your eyebrows raised when i said <laughs> is it available outside because here in australia it's very very different um david owns four clinics um you know where where it's available quite easily so it's it's interesting to see the cultural differences yeah
1: yeah, I mean.
2: however, we know, however, we know that there are some doctors, they come as visiting doctors and they inject their patients in their hotel rooms. <laughs> so, oh, really?
1: Wow. Yes, yes,
2: yes, yeah. Or there are these Botox parties or filler parties. <laughs> uh-huh. I have many, many times, especially during the lockdown, I have received so many requests and uh,
1: yeah.
2: uh, this urgent, urgent request. Yeah. Please can your home and being i said if i would have botox i would not be able myself to frown <laughs>
1: <laughs> now what what are the most popular brands of fillers and toxins being used in dubai
2: yeah right now the most popular fillers are um the juvederm ranch mm-hmm. the old Derm the Vitress technology, then uh, uh 1234 Ultra Ultra Plus. But we also have uh, Perfecta, which is made in France. Then we have Teosyal. Teosyal is also one of the uh, leading um, uh, products. Then uh, MRVL and um, Radius. So whatever is uh, produced by uh, Mertz as well. Then uh, what else we have? Um Uh, Yeah, Novo and, you know, all the other things, uh, all the other products. There are so many other products available as well, but they are not the leading products.
0: I don't know what Novo is. I've not heard of that one.
2: That's the organic filler. It's sold as, and it's marketed. I I, I need to see the marketing manager of this company (laughs) Honestly, he did a great job. Everyone knows Novea as the organic filler. So when I went, I was of very interested since I'm organic in and out. I'll have to Google this. Uh, but um, when I went into the details, there is nothing organic about it. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, but but it's uh, it's also one of the uh, yeah often used uh, products here.
0: Interesting. Now, Pega, I know you're a highly sought after injector. So your price prices may not be similar to the average doctor. Maybe they are. I don't know. But what would you typically charge a patient for a mil? And and do you just charge double for two mils? Or is there a discount? or, Or how do you guys normally do it over there?
2: Yeah. Uh, like everything else that is so diverse here in Dubai, exactly the same applies also for the prices. I don't think that anywhere else there is such a huge discrepancy between the prices mm. for the fillers and for the Botox, like in this country. Really? Okay. So let's, yes, let's start with the country. So, because we are talking about Dubai or we are talking about UAE, because UAE, has five Emirates. One of them is Dubai. The other one is Abu Dhabi. One of them is Sharjah. Then we have Ajman, Fujairah, Ras al-Khaimah. So, for example, in the Northern Emirates, the smaller traditional ones like Sharjah, Ajman, Fujairah, Or on, do you have something like Groupon or Coupon? (laughs) Yeah, yes. Okay, so you can also get Groupon or Coupon Botox for (laughs) 900 or even 500 dirhams. So uh, 420 dirhams are 100 uh, euros.
0: Yeah, I've just worked that out. So it's about three hundred and twenty Australian dollars or two hundred and fifty US dollars. For how much? Yeah. What is that for? And and what does that equate to? How many units or how many you know, what what is that?
2: Filler.
0: Oh filler yeah, for one much. mil.
2: Yes, exactly. So you can have it for even 500 where I don't understand how, because for example, I mean, I only use uh, use juviter uh, so um I don't want to say the exact price of it, but it's at least a 30% more than that is just the price of the filler to buy it from Allergan. Yes. <laughs> So I have to, I have to put another 300 dirham on top of it just to get it from the supplier. Yeah. So I don't know that wow. most of the, my work and, the, and everything else. So, but then there is also an open end. So when we come then back to Dubai, also in Dubai, we have different uh, um, a town, you know, areas in the town. So some, some districts and some areas, um, uh, where everything is cheaper, like in every other city as well. Yeah. We have the posh areas. So, um, and we have the very, you know, famous doctors and we have also the famous visiting doctors. Mm. So that's where this, all this variety comes from. And, um, so, my price is for one syringe of filler. So don't forget the 500 dirham for the uh, very cheap areas. Uh, my price for one filler is 3000, but there are all, I'm um, definitely not the cheaper one and not the average. I My price is the more expensive yeah. price. But there are definitely doctors who charge also up to uh, five thousand. Over five, but not many—maybe two or three maximum. But they're not very busy, and uh, <laughs> and uh, we have visiting doctors from Hollywood. Um, who are charging three thousand
0: US dollar per syringe? Wow! So I mean, just just to convert your own price, it's around a thousand Australian dollar, which I know for someone your skill level, I think's pretty good. It's pretty. I mean, it's 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 on the higher end for Dubai, but it's not out of the realms of craziness. It's oh,
1: really yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. So yeah, I think you should
0: <laughs> put your prices up, figure is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Patients are all cursing you know. <laughs> No, but obviously, it's just interesting. We've sort of done this question to all of our um, KOLs from around the world, and I don't think anything has completely surprised us. Um, Europe is cheaper, I've noticed, or we've
1: noticed. I think there's more competition with different products on the market in Europe, probably.
0: Yeah, definitely. Can we ask the same question for, you know, the toxins then? First of all, what's available? Which brands?
2: Yeah, part, we have Dysport, uh, uh, um, we have uh, Botox, of course, and uh, Xeomin. Mm-hmm. are the three, but Neuro- Neuroxin and uh, co- other Korean brands are available as well. Very interesting. Yeah, but leaders, the leaders are uh, Dysport and Botox, and then after Dysport and Botox, I would say is uh, Xeomin.
0: Okay. And how do you guys um, typically charge? Is it per unit, per area of the face, for the result? How do you go about it?
2: It's very different. Even uh, I would like to mention that uh, wherever I work, I usually don't work in a clinic alone. So I'm always in big clinics, aesthetic uh, uh, departments, where I work next to many other dermatologists and plastic surgeons, door next to door, and we all are employees of that facility. Yeah my charge is although it's not my clinic and i'm an employee as well so the patient comes into my room and charge even for the same for the same brand for the vicross technology of Juviderm for the same voluma pays than 1000 more than when she would go the next door to the plastic surgeon yeah. uh, with the same syringe and the same amount so this is also accepted here in dubai right. um they, they explain it with the doctor has a different, you know, expertise or background whatsoever. So then regarding the toxins is also very different. Some doctors also, again, my colleagues in the same King's College, London, uh, uh, Dubai branch, where I work right now, uh, they charge per unit, I charge per area. But uh, what I say is, it's because that's what the patients love. It's unlimited amount <laughs> until, until you and me, we are both happy with the result, including the touch-up. So that already sounds so... Because, you know, people don't like when they when they pay for something and then they have to come for the correction maybe one, two times, and then they need to pay again and again. They think that the doctor is doing it on purpose to charge extra. Yeah. So that's why I gave them peace of mind until... <laughs> now don't record that, yeah, until the eyebrow falls down.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> so, so, what,
0: so what are you charging for an area or, or, or just give us a typical example?
2: Exactly, I charge, for example, 2000 dirhams for Botox, uh, forehead, glabella and
1: feet. So the three areas. So yep.
0: three areas, that's about 700 Australian dollar or 550 US, which again, yeah, you it's know, it's
1: pretty reasonable. It's,
0: yeah. um, yeah, I think that's pretty reasonable. So, again, I want you to put your prices up to a 1000 Pego. You're too cheap.
2: <laughs> and I'm one of the most expensive ones.
0: Okay. There you go. No, no, no I'm joking again.
1: <laughs> and um, what about other products? So, you mentioned that the first syringe that you held was uh, Radiesse. So, do you still use like biostimulatory products? So, like Sculpture, I don't have Profilo's there yet or not. And then also your other treatments like uh, your fat dissolving. So, your Kybella or Belkyra, depending on, I'm not sure what you guys call it there, which one you have.
2: Yeah, unfortunately, we don't have any of them. We don't have Kybella and we don't have Melchiora. That's sad. So um, we, um, I use only Vicros technology and I only use Botox from Undergun as toxin, uh, but uh, for uh, skin quality. I use volite. That's my my favorite baby. But I do a lot of procedures um, uh, for skin quality, uh, mesotherapy, different kinds of mesotherapies, PRPs or PRP combining with microneedling, uh laser treatments. So patients usually get a treatment plan, which starts always with Botox and fillers because it's just one or two sessions and then it's done, it's finished, it lasts for quite a long time. And then we start with the skin quality treatment because skin qualities, Mm. I tell them, it's like brushing the teeth. You can't just do it once and then say, I don't need it anymore. So you need to do it all the time.
0: Can ask, yeah. and this is quite a, a long question, so please try and keep it short. As a derm, like there, we've had a lot of guests on who, who don't believe in PRP, they don't like PRP, they find it too too subtle or too fiddly. What what are you using it specifically for? And and are you manipulating the PRP in any way, or is it just centrifuged and, and injected? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, exactly. So what I do is I would only do a PRP for a patient as one treatment with nothing else if the patient insists on it. And I have a few patients who only want PRP and nothing else. So the way I explain the effect of PRP is I tell them when you go and you have an IV vitamin drip, how can the doctor tell you which percentage of your kidney, of your bone or your or your hair will then be improved? That's the same with PRP. We know that there is an effect, but I can't tell you which percentage and I can't even tell you on which aspect you will see the improvement. I can't tell you if you will see it in the sagginess or in the size of your pores or in the pigmentation or in the hydration. Mm-hmm. So if they agree with that, I do it. But what I do is always combining treatments. So when I combine the PRP with injecting mesotherapy, which contains vitamins and uh, glutathione and uh, and uh, um, hyaluronic acid, and I combine it with Volite, and I do Dermapen, and I do chemical peel at the end of the day it's impossible that the skin doesn't improve and at the end of the day they are not asking me which percentage of it was from dermapen and which percentage was from prp so i give them a package i tell them you can take this package or you can take the smaller packages depends on what is your target and your budget and um yeah that's where they see the 100 percent the result but then it doesn't matter from where it comes from
1: yeah. What about things like threads? Do you and they've become very popular, well, particularly the mono threads have become very popular here in Australia uh, in the last sort of 12 to 18 months or so. Do you have that sort of craze over in, in Dubai as well?
2: Yeah, there are a lot of patients asking for threads, very popular here and many doctors are doing threads. I tried to become friends with threads. <laughs> uh, I tried many them I went to many trainings I was not convinced in some trainings I was more convinced in other trainings with other threads so and then I started to use it and I was happy with the results but at the end of the day when I compare the the recovery time the way it works where does the effect of the thread comes and where does the effect of the filler comes and then what happens when you do both. So when you create that fibrosis every couple of months with the threads and uh, then you put filler on top of it because we have here a lot of patients who are also traveling a lot, expats coming, going or um, being all the time you know, or, or changing the doctor. This is here very common. It's not in other countries, usually in Europe, patients stay with their one doctor. Here is really like a doctor or clinic hopping. Um, So that's why I stay away now more from the threads because I don't like so much to combine filler with threads because I see that the fillers behave different. In a skin which had, for example, of course, a facelift, so where you have full plane of scar tissue under the skin, or how, or a um, couple of sessions of uh, threads, yeah, so
0: they are less
2: tolerable, less.
0: And I think again, you, you've agreed with pretty much everyone from every country. You tried it; you weren't hugely. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of blown away by it and, and you've gone back to filler it's interesting yeah
1: I think it depends on the expectation as well I think that um, if you see people overselling the results or promising facelifts and all sorts of things I think that's probably when you run, in, run into problems so I mean I've had the treatment done and I thought the results were quite good but maybe it's because of my age group and the, the my skin quality I don't really know but it's because you're I'm, obsessed with collagen. I'm obsessed. Yes, you're
0: collagen banking every week, <laughs> so every little helps. Now, Pega, I'm, I'm mindful of time, so we've just got a few more questions, really related to, to to business and sort of ending questions. So, what do you estimate the the approximate market um, penetration of of uh, injectables is in Dubai? And what I mean by that is, how many of the population do you think are actually engaging in in injectables regularly? We think in Australia it's about six to eight percent, which is apparently quite high um, for a country. But uh, do you have any uh, sort of inside information? Have you ever discussed this with anyone?
2: I do not have an exact number. So whatever I would say is purely based on my assumption. Uh, but I would definitely estimate it far higher than 6%. And the expl- uh, explanation for that is, first of all, I don't think that we have anywhere in the world more people coming into a clinic with an open budget. Yes, they don't even ask even if i know that the price or the package would cost quite a lot and i ask them would you like to have an idea about the cost before we start no it's fine it's fine <laughs> i'm definitely <laughs>
0: moving to dubai now
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so this is one reason and the second reason is that um i think the the age so we don't have here too many young people who do not need the procedures. I mean, like children. And we don't have here an old population. Yeah. So, um, this is another reason as well. And then, of course, because Dubai wants to be always the best country in the world for everything. So, they also try to be the most beautiful country. <laughs> so, beauty is here. Uh, yeah. One of the top uh, yeah. guys. Yeah. Uh, yeah seeing and being seen and going out every day so
1: (laughs) you mentioned um that it's quite a well in some ways it's quite an industry that's led by by doctors only and I guess that's very different to what we're doing here but in terms of I guess just running your practice in general what are some of the the challenges that you faced in terms of getting started in your own practice and do you have any advice for any injectors looking to follow a, a similar career path
2: yeah uh, it's not easy because of the very very high competition and the just the number of the clinics so we have here probably uh, more clinics uh, than germany bakeries so um the number of the uh, practitioners and the clinics Per head is, I think, very unproportional. We have here an area city. There are two streets, kilometer-long streets. Both of these parallel streets, they have one clinic next. So all there are villas on both sides of the two streets and from the beginning to the end, kilometers, only aesthetic clinics.
1: Wow, that's amazing.
2: Plastic surgery, uh, aesthetic dentistry aesthetic gynecology and uh, aesthetic dermatology
0: mm-hmm.
2: so the demand is very very high you have to be very special to survive or you have to be here long enough so that people know you then they don't care where you are how your clinic looks <laughs> yeah there is not I'll find here so that's why it's not easy
0: yeah. And, and particularly in the context of COVID and, you know, come through a pandemic, what do you see the growth of of the market in the next five years? You're already saying it's quite saturated. So wh- where do you think it's going to be in five years time?
2: Yeah, that uh, I would like first to say how it is now during COVID. Um, it's really to our surprise that the beauty market has increased and improved unbelievably mm. during covid. No one would have thought everyone thought okay people will now focus on very essential things and they don't want to waste their money mm. and they want to spend it in in their in their health or in anything else or moving out but uh, we have extreme high number of new expats coming here, extremely high number of tourists coming here. And uh, people are, because of all these Zoom meetings and online meetings, everyone is just taking care about how they look when they have the meeting. So um, the market has increased unbelievably against our expectation. Uh Everyone's revenue in the aesthetic is increased. Of course, some clinics, they... They couldn't survive because they had to close for a long time. But all the stronger ones who could survive during the lockdown where we were not allowed to even enter the clinic as the doctor. um, um, Yeah they all picked up and uh, were recovered and uh, difficult to say what will happen in uh, 5 years but what i observe is world war couldn't also stop the people you know to have their surgeries <laughs> and the aesthetic procedures <laughs> done so why should a pandemic do
0: yeah, it's, it's actually our experience yeah. here in Australia. Exactly, we—I mean, you know, we we knew about the this concept of the lipstick economy, where you know, in the Great Depression, women still put money in their makeup, and and they saw that sort of thing almost a hundred years ago. But we've definitely seen that here in Australia, where people really valued their injector uh, and, and the same experience as you. People were calling me, texting me, harassing me whilst we were in the lockdown asking for, if I'll drive around to their house to see
2: them. <laughs> yeah.
0: Now, last question. What's the future of injectables maybe into the next 10 years, 15 years? What, what do you predict we'll be doing or you'll be doing and, and, and what products and services will we be offering? No clue.
2: yeah i think um, what many patients are always complaining about is the duration of the botox if we would be able to inject uh, botulinum toxin in a way that would last longer and um, maybe a more safety pro working on the safety profile that we could avoid the uh, the isletosis or the uh, yeah the other complications of the fillers. I'm sure because if we if we observe what we have achieved over the last couple of years, why should we not be able to further improve?
0: Fair the enough. Long-
2: longevity would be definitely something what what hopefully will be worked on. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean. I've. I can't think of a patient who's ever been truly bothered that they only have to see me every four months mm. or so. I mean, it's not. It's not that short a duration. It's three times a year. Yeah. So these new toxins coming out. I mean, maybe I'll be completely wrong, and and everyone will will love it because they only go twice a year instead of three times a year. But I'm not mm. fully convinced that it's a huge game changing.
1: Dif- yeah. Point of
0: difference. Maybe if it was cheaper, then of course that's more
1: attractive. But um. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not sure. Well, I guess you know, being injected less is always a good thing. I mean, my patients what?
0: love me. They love coming for a chat.
1: They <laughs> want, they want to see me
0: more. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. But anyway, we'll leave it there, Pega. Thank you so much for your time. It's really good that's to catch so up. Wonderful. Thank you. <laughs>
2: Um, most welcome.
1: And, Thank you. Um,
0: stay safe. Uh, I, I don't know what your situation is with the pandemic, but it, it seems like it's calmed down. You've got lots of tourists and people coming into the country. Um, but uh, yes, so we'll we'll catch up soon, and really appreciate your time and uh, look after yourself. Oh,
1: and before you go, um, let's grab your contact details if someone wants to get in touch and send you an email or ask a question. And then also, if you're on social media, just give everyone your 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 contact details.
2: Yeah, I would prefer if anyone wants to get in touch with me would be, I think, uh, Instagram would be the easiest. At dr
0: So I'm going to spell that
1: P-E-G-A-H-D-E-H-D-A-R-I. Yep. Perfect. All right, Pega, we'll look after yourself. Thank you so much for your time and we appreciate the chat and stay safe and looking forward to either catching up with you in Dubai or having you uh, here in Australia, in Sydney
2: would be great thank you so much
0: for our latest news upcoming guests and episode topics follow us on instagram
1: at inside underscore aesthetics during the week before every recording look out for our instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out you can also dm us for any other information suggestions or guest requests